job site culture is one of the core pieces of the work that we do and approach from both a health and safety standpoint and a retention standpoint for workers, women and people of color. leave our industry at higher rates than their white male counterparts and harassment and hazing and bullying is one of the significant factors. So that's where our work is rooted and grounded in our history and the work at Oregon Tradeswomen. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This podcast series invites you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at work and at home. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and Oregon Healthy Workforce Center. This episode was produced and edited by myself, Helen Shuckers, written and hosted by Anjali Ramishbabu, and music provided by Sam Greenspan. Community feedback is important to us, so if you enjoy listening to what's work got to do with it, please consider leaving us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We really appreciate your continued support. Thank you so much for tuning into What's Work Got to Do With It. We are kicking off a two-part series on inclusion and worker well-being in the trades. On today's episode, so part one of our inclusion and worker well-being in the trades, we will be interviewing Executive Director of Oregon Tradeswomen, Kelly Kupchak, and Larry Williams from the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries. And both of their organizations have been large supporters of our research and partners through the years, so we're really excited to bring them on and to talk to them more about the important work that they're doing to improve inclusivity for women in the trades. And part two, so next month, we'll be diving a little bit deeper into the programs and partnerships with Oregon tradeswomen through Rise Up, which essentially brings about culture change to ensure that no one experiences trauma that can come from harassment, bullying, hazing, and any type of interpersonal violence. And before we dive into this episode today, I wanted to give some context and info on what the trades mean. So the trades are essential to the construction and building. So some examples of trades include carpentry, bricklaying, plumbing, And trades are a skilled profession, so typically requires manual skills, special training, and apprenticeship. So I hope you enjoyed this episode today, and we're going to dive right into our interview with Kelly Kupchak and Larry S. Williams. Kelly Kupchak grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, where early on she realized the critical importance of speaking out against injustice and wrote her first letter to the editor of the local newspaper in the third grade. After raising her sons as a single mom and working as a union heavy equipment operator and working as an advocate for women for almost two decades, she relocated to the Pacific Northwest to serve as Oregon Tradeswomen's Executive Director in 2017. Following the footsteps of founding Executive Director Connie Ashbrook, a role model and pioneer in the tradeswomen movement was quite daunting, but one she is grateful for every day as she gets to work at something she loves and she's incredibly proud of. Kelly is honored to be a part of the work and mission of Oregon Tradeswomen, where helping women into dynamic careers in the skilled trades so they are able to take care of themselves and their families. Larry S. Williams received a bachelor's in peace studies and a master's in sociology from the University of Missouri-Columbia. He has worked at the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries, or known as BOLI, for 25 years. Since 2010, he has managed a highway construction and workforce development program that is sponsored by the Oregon Department of Transportation and managed by Boley. 
The Highway Construction Workforce Development Program has funded pilot projects to adapt the Green Dot Bystander intervention to a construction environment to build capacity at Oregon Tradeswomen to deliver the Rise Up curriculum and for a current project at the Institute to develop a respectful workplace climate scale. Kelly and Larry, thank you so much for being here today. We're so excited. We've been waiting a long time to have this, this podcast and it's finally happening. <laughs> Very excited about it. So Kelly, we'll start with you. Of course, we're excited to feature the work of one of our center's partners. Would you share with our listeners how our center is connected with Oregon Tradeswomen? Thanks, Anjali. I'm really proud to be on the advisory committee and really proud of the work that happens there and the research that comes out of the center on behalf of helping workers improve their lives. And one of the pieces of work that is underway is really looking at the impact of um, the construction industry's workplace culture, which is really toxic, and that impact on on workers and uh, trades workers who are in the field. And some of the work that we do at Oregon Tradeswomen uh, from an advocacy perspective and a practical perspective around retention of workforce is in that same space also. Um, and we are super privileged to have a strong relationship with Boley Apprenticeship and Training Division and Larry, who's here today too, in terms of that, you know, they've supported the work around respectful workplace culture. So we're all really working collaboratively in this space, in this region, to change things to help improve outcomes for workers in our in our industry. There's a lot to be done, but also a lot of a lot of great groups working together to make that happen. Thank you. We I know for sure are so privileged to have you and you bring your perspective into our work because it makes such a big difference in how we in, uh, develop our own work and learn from that. Then could you talk a little bit more? I think you've done this a little bit already in uh, when you started off, but just going a little bit more into your work at Oregon Trades Women because you've been with the group for a little while and um, what its role is in the lives of workers in our region. Sure. Thanks, Anjali. Yeah, I've been at Oregon Tradeswomen since 2017. Before that, I worked for two sister organizations in the Midwest, um, hard-headed women in Cleveland and Chicago Women in Trades. So I've been an advocate for tradeswomen and tradesworkers for almost two decades. Um, and before that, I was in the field as a union heavy equipment operator, where I did, unfortunately, experience firsthand uh, the challenges of what it's like to be a woman um, on a job site in our industry. And as you might imagine, there there is still a lot of harassment and hazing and bullying that happens on job sites every day. And that is for, for all workers, including white men, but it happens at higher rates to women and people of color. Part of the work that we do at Oregon Tradesmen and our sister organizations across the country, we do apprenticeship readiness training, pre-apprenticeship training. We offer that at no cost to adult job seekers. And we also provide support services, retention services, leadership development, and uh, we do advocacy work, and that includes public policy initiatives at the regional, state, and federal level. We partner through with our other tradeswomen or sister organizations, as we refer to them, across the country through our National Task Force on Tradeswomen Issues. And job site culture is one of the core pieces of the work that we do and approach from both a health and safety standpoint and a retention standpoint, right, for for workers um, who leave women and people of color leave our industry at higher rates than their white male counterparts and um, harassment and hazing and bullying is uh, one of the significant factors and so that's where our work is rooted and grounded in our history and the work at Oregon Tradeswomen 
And uh, we've been incredibly lucky to partner um, not only with Foley through their investments in shifting worksite culture, because obviously as, an, as the apprenticeship and training division, they understand, and I'm sure Larry's going to talk more about this, the critical importance of not just getting folks in the pipeline so that we have a diverse and inclusive workforce, but also retaining folks. So it's it's actually incredibly heartbreaking to us at Oregon Tradesmen to be talking about the amazing careers and dynamic opportunities in the skilled trades and how that can benefit uh, women and their families with economic security and health care and pension benefits, and then turn around to see that it's really untenable in the experiences that they have uh, out on the job site that causes folks to leave. So it's really, we have to do both pieces of the work, get folks in and help them stay in. And part of that is changing job site culture. That's really something. And, you know, listening to that, it's so heartbreaking. There's so much work that could be done by so many people, and yet it's just not an option because of, you know, because of the nature of the work itself. And I have so many follow-up questions, but one thing that comes to mind is I hear experience from outside of Oregon as well. Are there differences you've seen just with different job sites in, in the incidence of like, discrimination or even how it's defined your approach for um, worksite culture change? Yeah, that's a great question. I think because so harassment and hazing is not new to our industry, but the shifting way that we're approaching it through bystander intervention and talking about it um, as a health and safety issue is relatively new. And one of the things that shifted is in 2017, the EEOC had a select task force on harassment in the workplace. And while it wasn't specific to the construction sector, some of the work and some of the recommendations that came out of that effort really sort of spoke to us as advocates in this space in a different way to say, it's not enough to just do the way we had been doing it in the past of like, here's a training that basically helps a contractor mitigate their risk so illegal behaviors aren't happening on a job site. So they could check a box and make sure they don't get sued, which is all fine and dandy, but that wasn't really shifting what was happening on the job site. We were still seeing all of those incidents happen and workers continue to leave, especially workers of color and women. And so um, when we looked at that report, we were like, oh, wow, this is like a different way of thinking about it, more holistic, and not just talking about illegal behaviors, but unacceptable behaviors. And so those microaggressions that we sometimes refer to, the little things that happen, and maybe in and of themselves aren't enough, right, to rise to a level where somebody would say this is a problem. But over time, they add up and they impact workers and they impact the job site in terms of health, wellness, and safety. And not just for the person being targeted, but for the whole job site. And so that has shifted how we do the work. And so it's relatively new. It took me a long way to say the way we're approaching it is different and relatively new. And so again, thanks to Bully, maybe you could tell I'm a fan, their investment also in not just investing in the practical application of job site intervention and respectful workplaces, but also ensuring that there's evidence-based outcomes. So Dr. Maura Kelly from Portland State University and others in this space have really been looking at like, what does that impact look like? I hesitate to say like, one job is doing this and one job is doing that or not enough. Certainly across our industry, there are folks who are pioneers and have said, we're gonna, we're gonna be on the forefront, we're gonna do this. Port of Portland is one that I would give an example to. So PDX Next, the airport expansion, they have rise up on that job site. 10,000 workers over the next five years will go through rise up uh, respectful workplace training. Will it make a difference? 
That's our hope. That's our intention. And we're seeing that change already, you know, through the work that we're doing. And there's certainly other program models that have demonstrated good outcomes too, such as Green Dot and uh, the Carpenter Cipher program called Positive Job Site Culture. Larry and myself and you as well and others in our community, we came together in 2020. We had a group of industry stakeholders looking at these other models, right? And there's a report that we put together that came out to say like, here's basically a scorecard of what we know so far as folks who are invested in the industry. But I think there's a lot more work to do in that space too. There's no authoritative body right now or third party credentialing that says, here's the content that you must have and here's how a trainer needs to be credentialed. Um, so, you know, I think we're we're looking at like, what are the next steps that we can all be collectively advocating for to continue to improve that body of knowledge and ultimately outcomes on the job site for our industry and for workers. And I want to ask at least 15 different questions to follow up on that. So you'll forgive me if I switch tracks a little bit and come back to, to parts of your no question problem. eventually. And I'll also put a little plug for our part two, as our listeners will know, this is part one of our two part episode and part two will be going to the EOC report you talked about and also the rise up trainings with Tiffany Thompson and Maura Kelly, who are also doing more work on the rise up training. So we'll talk more about that, but coming back to this episode, it was, it's so need to hear all of these multifaceted efforts because this is not just a one-pronged problem clearly right so worksite changing worksite culture has to do with preventing these negative actions in the first place harassment and discrimination and prejudice but also what do you do once it's occurred and how do you prevent it from happening again and so it's it's clearly a multi-layered approach and it's nice to know that it's happening in so many different ways and by no means is it simple it's a complex process but great to hear we're working on as a, as a group effort. Before we move on to asking Larry as well, I'll do a quick reference to the total worker health approach. So many of the aspects of worker well-being you talk about is, you know, comes back to the lens of total worker health, which is this approach that at the very basic foundation of work is a safe workplace and a safe job experience. And how that starts with workplace physical and chemicals and all of the and biological safety, but also adding on to that is the psychological safety piece. So how, how, how much you feel included at your workplace and how having those negative work experiences can have an impact on your health and well-being, as well as your safety at the job. The kind of work that you are doing, Kelly and Larry, is really trying to, in effect, put this total worker health approach into action. And I think that's another great way that we can see our research world in total worker health and your practice world all come together. Yeah, I really appreciate you framing it that way, Anjali, because it is, it is a very multifaceted piece and the strategies. And it's also our industry is complex. Larry might want to speak more to that, but all of the different players and how they interface. If you think of a typical workplace where the same folks are coming to the same place with the same people and the same set of expectations and, and culture, right, of their job site, that's very different than the construction sector where, especially on a commercial job site, you have multiple employers with different policies and different practices and folks that might work with each other for one day or one year or so it's very it is a very complex sort of ecosystem to deal with the the workplace culture and i think this is a perfect segue to to larry's work joining us in part one of this episode is larry williams who is with the oregon bureau of labor and industries larry thank you for being here so you drive worker safety efforts in the construction industry tell us a little bit more about your work and also about your partnership with kelly and oregon trades women 
Thank you for that introduction, Anjali. I work for the Bureau of Labor and Industries, as you said, and I manage a program that's funded by the Oregon Department of Transportation. And I'll try to mention ODOT as much as I can. Since Kelly plugged fully, I'll try to plug ODOT. <laughs> Work on uh, recognizing our partnerships. In our, in our program, we've got two broad goals. One is to prepare individuals who are interested in entering the highway construction workforce. And the other is to increase diversity in the highway construction workforce. And those are sort of like broad overarching goals. And our partnership with Oregon Tradeswomen has been critical to, to both of these efforts. In terms of worker safety, workplace climate, culture in general, we've sponsored pre-apprenticeship uh, classes through Oregon Tradeswomen. And in those classes, students learn what to expect on the job, construction job site and how to address issues that may arise. And in some ways, that has been historically the approach that pre-apprenticeship has taken is to sort of inoculate their students from situations that, that they might get into in the construction work site and say, basically, you know, if you run into problems, if you face a situation that you're not familiar with, if you're uncomfortable with something, come back to us and we will coach you, we'll talk to you, we'll put you in touch with mentors who've, who've dealt with similar situations or we'll advocate for you to try to move to another job site or, or something along that lines. And so that would be sort of the approach of helping the worker to adapt to what's not always a friendly work environment. And when you look at the research, a lot of women in construction have had a fantastic time going through the training and getting into, into the job site. And it really depends a lot on uh, the role of the dice, I guess, you know, who they get as a mentor, who, whether there's somebody that's supportive and is willing to teach them the ropes or whether they, you know, find themselves paired up with a bully of some sort. The experiences vary quite a bit from place to place. It's not a consistent kind of um, experience. And through our surveys and the feedback that we've received over the years, it's become clear that doing the pre-apprenticeship training and providing the kind of financial supportive services that we provide to apprentices is not enough, that we have to find some way to change the job sites to make them more conducive to a diverse workforce. That, you know, after we've done all this work to reach out to women and people of color to encourage them to come into the trade, to provide them some basic training, tool knowledge, and knowledge about the construction worksite, and then getting them into the, the apprenticeship programs to have them pushed back out to be discouraged from pursuing what's a good career in the trades. As uh, Kelly said, it's, it's disheartening, it's disappointing. It's, it's a waste of public resources, really, in a lot of ways. It's, you know, we're, we're spinning our wheels trying to, to get new workers and the, the industry is saying, hey, we can't find enough good workers to do the work. And, you know, at the same time, we're pushing people out. That's, that just seems uh, counterproductive. Exactly. And I just wanted to mention, too, I think one of the one of the reasons that some of the shift that we're seeing, and I, I really do have a lot of hope this moment in time, more so than I've had over the last two decades in this space, is one of the things that Larry mentioned is that the Bowley's Apprenticeship and Training Division does do a survey. They do a survey of, of apprentices, and that piece is important to reach out and have multiple entryways to checking in with apprentices uh, on, on what their experience is. And like Larry said, it is kind of a roll of the dice. You can land with a good company and a good foreman or a good mentor, or you can land where that person maybe isn't really the person you're paired up with, doesn't really have sort of the awareness that we're talking about is needed across the industry. So, and there was just recently a, a report that came out that I think both of you may have seen by the Institute for Women's Policy Research. They did a survey of tradeswomen nationally. I actually, it's a great report, but I was like 
you know, I think some of the, some folks aren't even reporting what they're experiencing because we've become so used to such a toxic job site culture. Unless something's incredibly egregious, we're like, oh, we're just going to deal with it. Again, there's still a lot more work to do. But I think the thing that's exciting for me personally in this space is, and, and you all were involved in this getting launched, was our Safe from Hate Alliance, where folks, after a horrific incident on one of our job sites in Portland happened, our community came together and said, what else can we be doing? And it was the same, almost the same time when our report came out with the recommendations for respectful workplace models. And so uh, a lot of work has been underway in a very meaningful, intentional way with all of the folks that make up the ecosystem of the construction industry in a way I've never seen before. So I feel that's why I feel hopeful at this moment that things could actually change. That's incredible. I'm so glad you brought up that uh, Respectful Workplace Committee as well. And Larry, to your point, you were speaking about how you partner with tradeswomen through the apprenticeship trainings. And I, and what makes, we've talked about, you know, things being so heartbreaking at the worksite and bad workplace culture, but what's heartwarming also is that there are organizations like yours who are able to, um, to not only train workers, but then they can also come back to you if something goes wrong and with the hope that you can then lead them to better alternatives. And so in that way, it, for a lot of trades, trades workers, then organizations like yours have their back. And it's fair to say that, right? Absolutely. And and sometimes, yeah, we get calls all the time, every day, folks just either walking in into our building after a, a hard day on a job site or texting or calling us. And, and, you know, just a really recent example, we had a graduate who's been in the field for a while, but she just happened to land uh, on a job site where the job site has been getting a lot of like we've been hearing great things but the particular subcontractor she was working for it's a lot of challenges and she reached out to us and, and we helped say okay here's how you can have a conversation with your union here's how you can have a conversation with your apprenticeship director or coordinator because they need to have some feedback like what the challenges are through that sort of you know helping them navigate and having some of those direct conversations for some clear support they were able to get moved to a different contractor and the apprenticeship program went out and spoke to the training agent Right. And I think that's one of the things and Larry might want to say more on this. Right. When we're looking at all of these different facets. Right. So from a health and safety perspective, um, a wellness perspective, but also like strategy and policy and like just practical. What can you do? The registered apprenticeship program to meet directly with the training agent, have some conversation. What are things they need to do to change? But in the immediacy, it wasn't safe for that person to stay on that job site. And she wasn't learning what she needed to learn to actually be a good tradesperson. So those are those are some of the things that are also happening from this regional work that we're doing and the conversation where we're saying, what can we do differently? So from what you're saying is that there's, you know, there's the instrumental support that doesn't doesn't just transfer all, okay, by your training and then on your own, but you will ca carry you through. But also it comes with that emotional support. And we know from research that it, that is such an important piece of allowing workers to have a low stress level and to stay at their job and to thrive on their job. And how are you so, empowered? How, how do we help workers be empowered? Absolutely. Right. And so coming back to your, to your point, Larry, then piggybacking on, on Kelly's Respectful Workplace Committee, is an outcome of that was the Safe From Hate Efforts Coalition. And so you are an active in these stakeholder-led efforts for Safe From Hate. And could you tell us a little bit about your experience implementing this uh, in your own work? 
And then I have a second question on that. As Kelly mentioned, you know, the, the respectful workplace model review committee, we spent a long time on that, looking at the different ways of approaching training for respectful workplaces, bystander intervention, setting expectations at different levels of the organization and, and the job site. When the transition happened to safe from hate, my focus has been on one of the subcommittees because it's like, it's a big, it's hard to get your arms around the whole, <laughs> the whole subject because it's, it spans lots of different coalition partners coming at it from different angles. So I've been focused on the uh, public owner uh, subcommittee and looking at some sample contract language and trying to come up with some ideas about how best to come up with some guidelines for procurement and contracting so that we can be as clear as possible about what expectations are, but not overly prescriptive in terms of the hundred things that could happen and the response is going to be to every every single thing. And you know, I mean, I think that one of the things we're still trying to work out is safe from hate has as one of its pillars a what is it, Kelly? It's well, a there's four pillars, right? One pillar is about bringing folks in and making sure the pipeline is diverse. Another pillar is to ensure there's mentorship and leadership development and training and support. And that the third pillar is around job site training. So making sure that job sites have respectful workplace training, whichever best practice model or emerging best practice model they choose. And then the other one is having a zero tolerance policy. So those are the four pillars that are in what we call the Safe From Hate Pledge. And some public owners have signed on to it, many contractors, unions, registered apprenticeship programs, community-based organizations like Oregon Tradeswomen, Constructing Hope, Portland Youth Builders, POIC, and others who are in this space wanting to make sure that our all workers have a safe job site to go to. See, she's well-versed in the big overarching. <laughs> it's the I think it's the zero tolerance piece that, that has been a little bit complicated to translate to contract language because mm -hmm. what it is we mean by zero tolerance and the consequences of uh, behaviors and incidents that may be at sort of like different levels of severity. I think it was starting off, you know, Safe From Hate was organized, I think as Kelly said, around a, an incident where there was a noose found on a job site, which is a very severe situation. And one now that's uh, actually been criminalized in, by the legislature last year. Situations like that, I think it's reasonable to have zero tolerance. But then there may be other situations that are of concern to us that may be recent in Kanto movies got the song that's got the drip 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 right <laughs> the drip 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 of like incivility and and intolerance on the job site can can really wear down people's sense of confidence and sense of wanting to come to work and there needs to be a way to address that but it might not be zero tolerance it might be something mm -hmm. that gets at accountability right. and um answering the situation but not going straight to sort of a capital punishment or a yeah. firing kind of situation. So I, th I think those are sort of like the nuances that when you start to get into contracting, when you say zero tolerance, it might have a certain meaning in terms of the law that isn't always intended. And so public agencies that are doing contracting have to like think about how to translate that into something that will work for different kinds of situations. Yeah, it's a complex space. And I really appreciate Larry, you and other public owners who are like working through all those things. I think the other thing I want to say too, because I, I think um, Anjali, not all of your listeners are deep in the construction culture and industry. So, you know, when we talk about microaggressions 
it's almost like we use the phrase uh, death by a thousand cuts, right? Larry, like you're talking about the drip, drip, drip. It does affect folks, you know, their confidence and overall ability to come to work and feel good about it. But it also is a health and safety issue. And I do want to underscore this because we just lost one of our union iron worker sisters, not here in Portland, but in Seattle to suicide. And our industry is number two for suicide. And these things are not just not unrelated, right? When you go to work and every single day you are confronted by racism, by sexism, by homophobia, by harassment, by hazing, by discrimination, it wears on you and your mental health and wellness, but it's also a safety issue because if I'm worried, are these guys, do these guys have my back? Or are they gonna do something to me? And I'm distracted from running a piece of heavy equipment safely. I, I'm not only putting myself in danger, I'm putting my colleagues and coworkers and other trace workers in danger. So we need to be looking at that, you know, when we're talking about total worker health, that's part of it too. And, you know, the American Heart Association also launched an initiative in the last year and a half, um, Heart Hats with Heart, where they're talking about the impact of stress in our industry. All those things are connected, right? So, Anjali, when you said it earlier, it's just layers and layers. It's very multifaceted. These are all the parts and pieces we're trying to address um, from uh, an industry and a culture that has had a long-standing history of saying it's okay to be this way. Our answer is no. We want to fix it together with absolutely. And I think this is really just such testament to the need for all of us to come together on this. And and this has been and just to provide our listeners with a little more um, context and background. Kelly, as a member of our external advisory committee, invited us, our center, to be part of these discussions and to be part of this respectful workplace committee. And given the focus of Total Worker Health to prioritize that safety piece first and foremost, and to integrate all of these issues into what is what we consider safety. It's not just being safe traditionally, like uh, physically safe on the job. It's being mentally safe on the job as well. You have are seeing evidence and evidence and evidence of this so much more in all of your years of experience. And so it's important for all of us to talk together and to share this information because there's so much need for all of our strategies to come together to inform this. And uh, for me, I think it's been an incredibly powerful learning experience, very humbling, but also just so encouraged by all of the work that you're all doing on the ground effort that you're doing. So. That we're all doing, Anjali, because you're you're part of it too, right? In the work and the research that's that's happening through the center. I mean, I think that that to me is also the piece that's exciting is that the work that we're doing here in Oregon together and the different initiatives that are connected to this common issue. We have had other folks from other regions come in and join our meetings, our quarterly meetings. You both know that like some of those meetings, there's over 300 people. And we had um, we had the director of the Department of Labor's Women's Bureau, Director Wendy Chun-Hun, uh, attended in November. We did a webinar on job site culture during National Apprenticeship Week on uh, Women in Apprenticeship Day. And we didn't know she was going to be there and saw her in the audience. And she called Oregon Tradeswoman afterwards and said, this work that y'all are doing, your community of practice, because it's not Oregon Tradeswoman by ourselves. We couldn't do it without all of you. And the other folks weren't here with us today. Uh, and she, you know, she said, this is a model we need to hold up. So that is giving me hope, too, that, you know, other folks are looking at us. And so, like, let's get it right. 
let's help us, let's do it right in our community and then share our lessons and best practices with other folks across the country to make the change we know that needs to happen nationwide in our industry. There's a lot of hope. And I feel like we're also getting to that point. It, it feel, The way we're talking, it feels like I would love to end on that positive note, but I have so many more questions to ask. So I'll keep, I'll keep moving along. Larry, as you were talking, another question came to mind because you talked about the zero tolerance pillar, right, specifically. And one of my questions was going to be, you know, there's so much work going on in, in the Safe From Hate Coalition. There must be challenges translating some of that work into action. And I think you pointed that out very specifically. So what are some challenges in involved in getting these kinds of efforts off the ground and also keeping them going? And one thing that it has been so wonderful to see is how big this group has gotten, because at the core of it all, people are knowing that they're recognizing that there's a need to change and they're wanting to be part of that change. So what have you seen in your work? What are some challenges that you see, but also what are some things that can help you move this kind of work along in your experience? I think that one of the big challenges been around how we measure whether we're having the impact we want to have. What, what happens at a lot of these meetings is we talk about the kind of training that we can provide and then come up with a way to evaluate the, what we think is going to happen, right? What, the, what we believe the effectiveness of the training will be. And a lot of this is new enough that we don't have a lot of research on it yet, right? So like the, the Safe From Hate, when they came into the presentation, like, well, we've implemented stuff in the Seattle area and Maura Kelly's been working with us to evaluate it, but things got held up because of the pandemic. You know, the pandemic, we blame that for lots of things, yeah. including a delay in our evaluation efforts. And they say that, uh, you know, what you measure, what you value. If you don't measure it, then, you know, it's hard to tell what it is you're accomplishing. So I've had sort of a, a long relationship with uh, the center with Kent Anger, who was, you know, I originally contacted around the supervisor training that he was doing and thinking about work-life balance issues, which, you know, when I'd, when I'd had some surveys done with contractors say, well, you know, here's these work-life issues. You think that's important? They're like, yeah, we think it's important. Are you going to do something about it? No, we're not going to do anything about it. No time, no money. <laughs> you have to keep going. Some of the work that, that Dr. Anger's done has been around not just safety on the work site, but also helping supervisors to touch base with their workers to see how they are, to check in with how things are at home, you know, to be kind of at least to be aware of them as human beings as well as. And then also we worked with Diane Rollman, who was with the center um, to develop a nutrition training for, for apprentices. And she it came to fruition actually after she moved to Iowa. We count that as if she's still affiliated with the with the center. So we count that as a as a bonus Always too. Right. Um, we loved we love that nutrition training, by the way. Oh good. Thanks. And then uh, Kent Anger introduced me recently to Emily Wang and the Safety Climate Center that she runs. And I, I posed a question to her after I'd looked at some of the some of the work, whether they would be interested in trying to develop a respectful workplace climate scale. They've jumped at the opportunity with both feet. They did some preliminary literature review and some developed some possible measures at the end of the last biennium. And, and this biennium, I think we're, the plan is to try to have a scale ready by the end of 2023 that will be usable, at least a long scale, and then from there to develop a shorter scale. Then. Research moves kind of slowly because you're methodical to make sure you've got good objective measures. It's not, it's not probably not as quick as we'd like to see. It's going to be really important and useful in terms of showing the impact of the trainings and showing both the, the state of the current 
uh, work environment and how it can improve, mm -hmm. right? And expectations that are clear on contracts about what kind of climate you need to have. And it's to improve the interventions. Yeah. I think it's it's revolutionary and so exciting. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some of the people that I talked to at, at ODOT have told me it's like, well, you know, you've, we've, we have in our contracts, we can say the concrete has to meet these specifications. The steel for the bridge has to meet mm -hmm. these specifications. We need something that says the workplace right. climate needs to meet these specifications. Right. You need to be at this or above or you need to be showing progress and moving that direction in order to get paid to do the construction work, because that's this is the kind otherwise, you know, you're contributing to us squandering public resources while you're pushing people out of the out of the industry and raising the costs for all of us because now we have to pay people to come here because right. we can't keep people on the job. Both of you might remember too some of the recommendations that our respectful workplace committee sort of identified at the end of our like scorecard, if you will. And one of those concepts was about standardizing the training, pick, like understanding what content was most critical and that piece. But the other piece that was really important that we have been talking about is the concept of an ombuds office, right? To also help in that space of having a repository, but also a way for workers who are being impacted to safely report and then have a response on the other side of it. And I think that concept has gotten some traction and that's like one of the next sort of next steps, I think that's part of our Safe From Hate Alliance and our work together. But Larry's done a lot of work in that space. I don't know if, if there's time to chat about that at all today, but that's to me so critical in this in this work. There's just so much, and almost feels like we need to have multiple episodes of this. But Larry, hopefully you'll come back another time, and we can we can hone in on some of those on your work um, a lot more. But I think what our listeners can take away from this is that every effort takes time. Everything is, you know, it's not something that you can wave one and it'll just happen. Culture change for sure does not happen. It's taken a while to get here in the negative way it has built. And it takes a while to, to change out of it as well. And it takes all of these policy pieces, these research pieces, these advocacy pieces to make that positive movement little by little. But we're getting there. And so that's the exciting piece of it. Larry, thank you also for, you know, you shared some really great examples of how research and, and practice come together. Your work with our center, with Dr. Ken Anger's work on his uh, Be Super project with um, the PUSH project and also Dr. Huang's safety climate research. And so the idea is that from what I'm gathering that this such a scale will help to inform the status of, of a work site with regard to how respectful and how inclusive it is and then and getting that information to inform your next steps and what you can do about it. So that is all very, again, I use the word encouraging a lot, but this is really where the dream is for the science to meet the action and practice world so we can all benefit from it. So I'll move on. I think since we've covered a lot of ground in this um, in this podcast, but I wanna uh, do two more questions. And what are some initiatives in the future that you'd both like to see in the community to support workers in, in trade occupations, but also in construction? So I guess in a way, what is your long-term vision in your own work, in your own careers. As I said earlier, our project is funded by Oregon Department of Transportation, it's federal highway funds. And so the work we do is somewhat limited in terms of scope because we look at trades that, that do highway work and do bridge work. So, so operators, 
uh, carpenters, laborers. And then there's other trades that are kind of left out. You know, so we could provide, say, childcare subsidies to a cement mason because they do curbs and gutters. But a brick mason, usually we can't because they're mostly building vertical buildings. So, you know, it's like, it's, it seems, it seems unfair. You're a woman, a person of color, a white man that decides to go to uh, the cement mason program and you're a single parent and you need help with childcare, you can get that help. And if you, you know, decide you want to be a brick mason, well, no, you're out of luck. So unless you qualify for employment related daycare, which means you got to be below what, 185% of federal poverty level. I'd like to see uh, a lot of the services that we offer, which which the, the research has shown is been effective in retaining apprentices of all sorts and particularly closing the gap for women and people of color in terms of completion rates. I'd like to see that expanded to other construction trades and ideally to, to other apprenticeship trades since I'm with the apprenticeship and training division. That's, that's sort of the <laughs> outsider limits of my focus at, at present. And there's been some discussion in this this most recent legislative session about putting some funds, uh, I guess, a windfall from the federal government and you know the economy is picking up some. So we have an opportunity now, we're calling it a once in a generation opportunity to put money into workforce. And we're hoping that uh, we can make good use of that, build on what we've already developed. And I'm also excited about building on the public-private partnerships that we have with groups like Oregon Trades Women and our labor partners um, to do more great work. Is that so important what you just said there? I mean, I feel the same way that one of the things I feel like that was very, you know, monumental for us at Oregon Tourism in this last two years of working through the Safe from Hate Alliance and in partnership is how you can really from an advocacy standpoint, right, and public policy, but also engaging researchers so that there's evidence-based outcomes so that we can do better and impacting industry. How, like all of the different parts and pieces, when we were able to come together from those different lenses, but all of us centered in equity, we're talking about this from an equity perspective, but it is, it's inclusive to total worker health. And we also know, you know, even outside of the construction sector and within that oftentimes people of color have more significant health disparities and impacts. And COVID showed us that. It showed us that with workforce. It showed us that with women, all the things. And so to me, it's like in like the next iteration, if we're doing this really well, we won't need organizations like Oregon Tradeswomen because we'll have equity and we'll have parity. And then I can retire like Larry's planning to do. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, right, like let, how do we how do we take these big, complex social issues and work collaboratively from a multidisciplinary approach to solve them? And we're not there yet, but I feel like we're on that road. And so it's a very exciting time to be doing this work with you all. That's so great. And I think the, what I'm hearing in this is, you know, this collective work in building a culture of equity, that everybody can have access to all the supports they need, and where the trades can really become a sought-after place and very real, very feasible career path for a lot of people. So that is just great. Thank you. One more question as we close out of episode, we always like to end our podcast with takeaways for action. Both of you shared just a wealth of information. So if there are specific kind of resources or, or thoughts or comments or experiences you'd like to share from your work that have been impactful to you in particular, we'd love to hear that. Or you can also 
send us some some links and and resources and we will put that in our podcast show notes as well well larry do you have do you want to any last thoughts any last words (laughs) i i don't i don't think i have any last thoughts but i i could send links off topic because kelly was talking about multidisciplinary approaches and so i was thinking about my interdisciplinary degree bachelor's degree and how my grandparents were wondering whether i'd gotten a degree in anything because I was like, I, it was everything. And they're like, it sounds like nothing to us. <laughs> look, what, look what we're doing now. Right? And see, and that's another reason why the trades are super tangible, right? And like, it's a pathway and all that good stuff. You don't have to incur college debt and you have a job on the other end of registered apprenticeship. But I think the only other thing I would say for listeners is just a call to action. If you're in the Portland region, come join us at a Safe From Hate meeting, learn more about what we're doing. We're hoping to have our website up soon, but also pay attention to public policy in your community. Don't be afraid to be an advocate. Reach out to the partners in the space that you're trying to impact health and wellness, total worker health, where you see challenges. Start having conversations. I mean, one of the reasons that we were able to even as a small little nonprofit at Oregon Truth Women is because we talked to the right folks. And one of those right folks was Larry. Another right folk was you and other people. And we just started talking, but we just kept talking until Folks said, okay, we're all listening and we're all in this together. And that's where movement and change starts to happen. That is a great stopping point. I think that I have nothing else to wrap up. I think you both have been so great on this podcast. And I think this has been a wonderful, wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Anjali. Thanks so much for tuning in to our podcast episode and sticking around. We greatly appreciate Kelly and Larry for kicking off our two-part series on inclusion and worker well-being in the trades. And don't forget, we will be hosting our spring 2022 symposium on Friday, June 3rd from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time. It will be virtual again this spring. We will be covering the topic from the great resignation to the great reconfiguration. So with the pandemic and the workplace and economic challenges, we've been hearing that buzzword or reference to the great resignation or the big quit. So this symposium will focus along the lines of worker safety, health, and well-being on this topic. The agenda and registration is now available. So I'll definitely drop a link in the show notes for you to learn more information about that. Next month, we will have another episode and we will be bringing in Tiffany Thompson, Director of Workforce Equity and Technical Assistance for Oregon Tradeswomen and Mara Kelly, Associate Professor of Sociology from the Portland State University. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode or are you interested in being a guest on our podcast? Well, we want to hear from you on those important workplace issues that you would like to discuss. Please email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. That's O-C-C. H-E-A-L-T-H-S-C-I at ohsu.edu. If you want to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events, consider following us on our Oregon in the Workplace blog or our social media channels. You can find us on facebook.com slash on Twitter at OHSU Health, or you can find us on LinkedIn by searching Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.